Good evening, this is Rob McClure along with Vicki Iden bringing you your local news live from the WORT studios on Bedford Street in downtown Madison. Here are the headlines for this evening. Wisconsin's legislative Republicans have unveiled their redistricting plan. According to the Associated Press, the legislature is now set to pass new legislative and congressional maps in early November, which will then almost certainly wind up mired in federal and state court. Both Democrats and Republicans have been gearing up for the legal battle in recent months. Democrats want to push the issue before federal court, while Republicans hope to get it to the conservative-leaning Wisconsin Supreme Court. Last time around, the legal battle went all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court. The redistricting process is undertaken once every 10 years, after the state receives precise returns from the U.S. Census. A jury has acquitted a woman accused of instigating an attack on a Wisconsin state senator last year. The Associated Press reports that Carita O'Reilly of Madison was found not guilty of felony substantial assault and misdemeanor order disorderly conduct. O'Reilly was accused of charging at Democratic Senator Tim Carpenter during the during a protest last year, prompting other people to begin kicking and hitting him. Carpenter was filming a protest outside the Capitol at the time of his attack. In his testimony, Carpenter said he didn't believe that O'Reilly hit him after others began attacking him, but she did knock him off balance. The jury also heard testimony from two Madison reporters who witnessed the assault while news gathering. WORT News Director Sholly Pittman and Isma senior writer Dylan Brogan. Brogan and Pittman were ordered by the court to testify. The state of Wisconsin ranks second in the nation for school board recall attempts. According to the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel, only California ranks higher. Recall efforts against school board members have surged in the past year, largely driven by debates over COVID-19 health protocols and teaching about race. According to Ballotpedia, 81 recall petitions have been filed against 209 U.S. school board members so far this year, nearly triple the total number in 2020. The Wisconsin State Journal reports that a lawsuit over a planned snowmobile trail through Blue Mound State Park has triggered yet another lawsuit. In June, Friends of Blue Mound State Park, a volunteer support group, sued the Department of Natural Resources to stop the snowmobile path, which they argue could disrupt sensitive habitats. Pardon me. According to the State Journal, the park threatened to sever its ties with the group if it didn't stop the suit. According to a new lawsuit filed yesterday when the volunteer organization's attorney requested records related to the case, the DNR reportedly withheld a memo detailing the threat. Madison's Police Civilian Oversight Board has named two finalists for the city's new independent police monitor position. The monitor will work hand-in-hand with the board to oversee the Madison Police Department's operations and policies. According to the Wisconsin State Journal, the two finalists, who were narrowed down from 30 applicants, are Byron Bishop and Tiffany Simmons. Bishop is the current head of the city's Equal Opportunity Division, a part of Madison's larger civil rights department. The department is tasked with enforcing city policies against discrimination in housing and employment, among other areas. Simmons is a lecturer at American University and works at the Washington, D.C. Department of Corrections. The Oversight Board, which has the final say in the hiring, will review the finalists' oral interviews in closed session tomorrow. 
The Wisconsin Department of Natural Resources is asking residents for help with removing gypsy moth egg masses. Gypsy moths are an invasive pest that have been on the rise in the past few years. According to the department, their population increased for a second consecutive summer in 2021. A gypsy moth egg mass is a tan-colored mass about the size of a nickel or quarter. They can be found on trees along with along with buildings and other outdoor structures. Egg masses can be treated by gently scraping them into a container of soapy water, soaking them for a few days, and then disposing of them in the trash. The City of Madison will be holding a virtual public information session tomorrow from 6 to 7.30 p.m. to discuss the downtown portion of the city's forthcoming bus rapid transit line. The BRT project seeks to connect Madison's east and west sides via high-frequency, high-capacity bus lines. The downtown portion of the project, particularly along State Street and the Capitol Square, has become the focus of criticism and pushback from local business owners. They argue that the project will disrupt pedestrian traffic and business in the area. For more information, listeners can visit the City of Madison's website. And now here are your COVID-19 numbers, courtesy of the state's Department of Health Services. Wisconsin's rolling seven-day average of COVID-19 cases currently stands at 1,923 confirmed cases. Preliminary data indicates that as of yesterday, the seven-day moving average of those hospitalized stood at 1,084 patients. 91% of the state's hospital beds are currently in use. Meanwhile, earlier today, the Food and Drug Administration authorized boosters for the Moderna and Johnson & Johnson vaccines. The federal agency also gave its seal of approval for, for booster shots that differ from the type originally received. According to the Washington Post, the new booster shots could begin rolling out as early as the end of the week, pending a meeting of CDC advisors and a decision by the center's director. And those are the day's headlines. Now on to the rest of today's top stories. Earlier today, Wisconsin's Senate passed several Republican-authored abortion bills. Our producer, Jonah Chester, fills us in on the details. The bills would, among other things, prohibit abortions based on the race of the fetus or any disabilities it may have, defund abortion providers by mostly barring them from participation in Medicaid, and set new reporting standards for abortion providers. Medical facilities are already required to report abortion data to the state's Department of Health Services, but that information is essentially anonymized and can't be traced back to a single provider. The proposed legislation would eliminate that anonymity. Senator Chris Larson, a Democrat from Milwaukee, says that could place providers and patients in the crosshairs of far-right activists and domestic terrorists. You guys want a list of where abortions are performed in the state of Wisconsin. You want to have a list, you want it made public. The heck does that have to do with protecting a woman? What the heck does that have to do with protecting anybody other than making it that much easier for protesters and the domestic terrorists that hide in their midst to attack doctors, to attack Women. All of the abortion bills passed along a party-line vote with all Democrats in opposition and all Republicans in favor. They face an all-but-certain veto from Governor Tony Evers, which Senator Kelda Royce, a Democrat from Madison, pointed out today. What's happening today with these anti-choice bills is also deeply cynical. And that's because we know 
that none of these bills are going to become law. We're not making law here today. All we're trying to do is hype up the conservative base before an election and try to put the governor in a tough spot. But we know he's going to veto these because time and again, Governor Evers has proven himself to be a champion of women and families. In response to the Republican-backed legislation, Roy's and her Democratic colleagues have floated a counterproposal dubbed the RESPECT Act. The bill would streamline access to abortion and reproductive care by revoking several laws enacted by Republicans in recent years. And it faces long odds in the Republican-held legislature. We should take up the RESPECT Act, which was just introduced earlier this week, to help ensure that politicians don't dictate what doctors say to patients, but that Doctors themselves are the ones providing individual patient-centered care, as is the cornerstone of the informed consent process. Wisconsin's informed consent policies require abortion providers to supply certain information at least 24 hours before an abortion is performed. One of the Republicans' bills would require providers to give additional information that would, quote, inform a woman about the possibilities of continuing a pregnancy after ingesting an abortion-inducing drug, unquote. Senator Chris Kapanga of Delafield was the sole Republican who spoke in favor of the bills today. What we're doing here is we are making sure that a woman has the most information she can, the best information she can. So if she makes the decision to say after the first pill that's taken in a chemical abortion, if she chooses not to take the second pill and her, her physician can tell her this, It's more information so that she can make a better informed decision and she knows that she can continue the pregnancy. She may continue the pregnancy if she chooses. The Republican-authored abortion bills are awaiting a final vote in the Assembly before heading to Governor Tony Evers. According to the Associated Press, Evers vetoed an identical package of legislation last session. Also today, the Senate approved a bill that seeks to address a recent spike in catalytic converter thefts and a bill expanding permitted work hours for kids under 16 during the summer. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Jonah Chester. The time is now 6.16, and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. The Wisconsin Science Festival is an annual statewide celebration of science. Beginning tomorrow and running through Sunday, the program will feature some 170 events in more than 30 counties. For more on the event's local offerings, our producer Jonah Chester spoke with Laura Heisler, the festival's co-founder and director. So just in brief, for folks who might not know, what, what is the Wisconsin Science Festival? Yeah, it's an annual statewide celebration of science, and it means science to every possible entree you can think of, whether that's stuff that might feel traditional, like hands-on demonstrations where you hold a brain or put on gloves and get your hands wet and interact with something, to um, thinking about food and sports and dance and film and just all kinds of ways to access science. Um, It's part of a global movement of public science events that um, celebrate 
science in communities. Some of them are city-based, some of them are university-based or museum-based. Ours, because it stems from the University of Wisconsin and embraces the Wisconsin idea, is a statewide festival, and we're part of a handful of statewide festivals in the U.S. We're one of the first statewide science festivals in the U.S. and one of the longest running. This will be our 11th year. And so it takes place over four days each fall. And um, most of the events are actually outside of Dane County, but there's tons of stuff to do in the Madison area as well. Yeah, so pretty big event across the state. But for those of us mm-hmm. who are who are here in Dane County, I'm in Madison proper. Uh, what can I look forward to? What do you what do you have programmed for us in the immediate area here in the next few days? So many things. I'd love to run down the list of some of the highlights. So everything kicks off on Thursday evening. And our headquarters, because this is where my staff and I are based, is the Discovery Building on the UW-Madison campus, sometimes incorrectly known as WID. It's at 330 North Orchard Street. It's that beautiful glass building on the corner of Randall and University and Campus Drive in that triangle there. Um, So that's our our HQ. And kicking off tomorrow evening, we have uh, a number we have we start out with our we have a partnership with the Wisconsin Book Festival so we are kicking off our first event is at 6 p.m. and is a book festival meet science festival talk about a world without soil uh, and then we flow right into one of our signature events at seven o'clock on Thursday evening called Big Ideas for Busy People. We always pick a different theme for big ideas each year. This one is how do we know what we know, exploring the role of evidence and how we learn things and advance our understanding. And Big Ideas is a series of five-minute talks. So we get university professors who are not accustomed to being brief to deliver their talks in five minutes. And we have a giant timer and a gong. And if they go over five minutes, we gong them off. And so then it's on to the next talk. So it's really fast-paced. It's really fun. And we'll be looking at the role of evidence on on a range of topics, everything from having the founder of the Innocence Project present to understanding uh, how we understand climate change and what kinds of evidence inform that. So that's a really fun event and one of our signatures. And then on Friday is probably our biggest single event of the whole festival. We take over State Street in the Capitol Square. We've been doing this for a few years. Obviously, we couldn't do it in 2020, but um, it's called Science on the Square, and we are partnering this year with the Madison Night Market. So if you head downtown, if you're familiar with the Night Market, that will seem familiar. And all of State Street is going to have night market vendors as well as dozens and dozens of science opportunities all up and down State Street. Uh, and, and we're also around the square and up and down State Street taking a number of restaurants and bars and coffee houses. And you can see a full listing of these on our website, WisconsinScienceFest.org, to have opportunities to sit outside and chat with the scientists. It's called Stumble Into Science, and we'll have tables clearly marked with the Stumble Into Science sign. And at each table with Stumble Into Science, there'll be a scientist sitting there just dying to talk to you and, you know, have you explore your shared interest and curiosity. So that is that whole event is family-friendly, adult-friendly, um, choose your own adventure all up and down State Street and around the square. And so that'll be huge. And that kicks off. The night market kicks off at four and our science exhibitors will be in place by five. And our stumble into science runs between six and eight. And so all of those activities and a detailed map of what's going on with that is on our website as well. And then on Saturday, uh, we have a number of talks and discussions at the Discovery Building with book festival talks throughout the day and two panels on fungi because we have a big focus this year on fungi. So we have a panel exploring the role of fungi and hallucinogens in medicine and psychology and um, mentioning the new UW Institute 
focused on that. A number of the principals from that institute will be on hand. And then we have a, another panel all about fungi, sort of friend or foe, and their role in Wisconsin ecosystems, industry, agriculture, et cetera. And just a number of book talks all day. So I would encourage people to check that out. And then in the evening on Saturday, go on down to the Mallards. And you do have to sign up for this. And there are still spaces. Uh, We are doing, uh, again, back this year after a really good event last year, Drive-In Science Movies. So we're featuring Fantastic Fungi, which is an amazing film that is just beautiful graphics and visuals all kinds of very cool things about the role of fungi in our world. And then we're following that with Alice in Wonderland, which is also a different take on how fungi can impact us. And then we have a few more events on Sunday in the Madison area. And we are, if you're willing to go outside of town, Trinan Farms is a good partner of ours. And their corn maze is science-themed once again this year. And on Sunday, they're going to have a number of activities associated with science and fun and music and all kinds of things at Trinan Farm. And um, we have a bunch more events around, you know, just around the county. And so there's a full listing of them on the webpage. And it's worth checking that out if you want to dig into other things. I will also say we have something that goes on all the time, which is sort of a citizen science, self-guided way to participate called the BioBlitz, where you download an app and then you go out and you photograph on your phone really cool observations plants, animals, and you upload them and various people will comment and help you understand what that, what you're looking at. You're also helping to create a record of what we're seeing in Wisconsin this time of year. So that's another self-guided thing that you can do anytime throughout the festival. It kicks off tomorrow morning. The BioBlitz goes live. So you can do things on your own. You can also go online. There's a lot of interactive things on our website that you can explore with your kids and do science experiments at home as part of the festival. But there's a ton of things to get you out and about outside and up and down State Street. And if you're willing to go to the Discovery Building, we have some amazing talks that are going to be happening down there as well. Yeah, so like you mentioned, a lot of that programming is hands-on. It's in-person. So what are you taking out of last year? I'm assuming the, the Science Fest looks significantly different last year compared to how it's shaping up for 2021. Yeah, you know, this year is kind of a blend of what's been successful pre-COVID and things that we found to be great ways of engaging with folks last year. So the BioBlitz is one example that we started last year as a way of encouraging people to get outside, and we're definitely keeping that. And so that was really successful. Being outside is our solution to the current situation as much as possible, especially for folks with kids who they may be more concerned about because of vaccination opportunities, et cetera. So that's where the the downtown event um, is something that we couldn't do last year, but we can do this year. And um, I think, you know, it's, it's been successful in the past. So we also are, we, we learned last year that we could engage folks through hybrid programming. So if we have a talk or a discussion, We are live streaming all of those, which we hadn't done prior to COVID, and we'll be doing that in the future. I think it's just a great way of reaching more folks and then recording all of those things as well. And we did learn last year that a lot of folks weren't able to catch some of these sessions real time, but they were willing over the next few weeks to go and um, watch a video of something that happened. And so that will certainly be available this year. We'll keep all of that content live. So if you can't get the stuff or stuff is happening in parallel and there's too many things to do, we will make all of those things available uh, going forward. There's one more innovation that I forgot to mention that folks in Madison and beyond can explore, and that is to find uh, to go on our website again and find one of the many libraries that has 
science in a bag. And these are science kits in a bag that are yours to keep. You can just grab them at the library and they have tons of, uh, they have some supplies and then tons of QR codes to link you to some activities that you can do on your own and interact virtually with scientists who've designed these activities. So you can grab one of these science in a bag kits from a number of libraries and the full list of the libraries is on our website as well. And I think that's something that will continue because it's also just a great way of meeting people where they are on giving them something they can do on their own, but still be connected. Uh, Laura, thanks so much for joining me today. I think we've done a pretty, pretty thorough rundown of what y'all have planned going into the weekend. But before I let you go for the afternoon, uh, is there anything else you think folks should be aware of going into the, into the science fest, anything you haven't touched on here today that you, you want to float to the surface? Well, I definitely want to make sure people know that the website is where you figure it all out and plan your adventure. So it's WisconsinScienceFest.org or W-I-S-C-I-F-E-S-T.org. And we have a filter on there that you can put in what day or time you want to go to an event, or you can use keywords to search, or you can enter your location and see everything that's within, I believe it's a 50-mile radius. And that I really recommend doing that if you want to plan a number of events or if you want to get out and enjoy the beautiful weather and see if there's a science festival event around, chances are there is because there are events um, all over the state. So if you want to explore a different part of the county or the area, go check out the Science Fest website for that as well. So I really think there's more than 300 different things to do. So it's impossible to... Um, and tell you all about them in a few minutes, but the website will be your best guide and help you plan your adventure. And uh, we'll have a link to that up in the web version of this interview at wortfm.org. Laura, thanks so much for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me. Laura Heisler is the co-founder and director of the Wisconsin Science Festival. You're listening to Handcrafted Local News here on WORT. Stay with us. We've got a lot more stories for you coming up in the second half of the show. We get the latest in local government news on Downtown Abbey. Rob McClure brings us the most comprehensive weather forecast on the air. And Madison in the 60s remembers the Battle of Dow. But first, we'll take a break and check back in for world headlines from the BBC. Stay tuned.
time is now 6.32, and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. I'm your host, Robert McClure, here with my co-host, Vicki Iden. Thanks for staying with us. Do you know what the City Council is up to this week? How about the Dane County Board? Each week, we turn to the Cap Times' Abigail Becker for what you need to know about what your local government is up to. This week on Downtown Abbey, the debate over the new Dane County Jail continues as building costs climb. All right, it is Wednesday, which means I am joined on the other end of the line, as is tradition, by local government reporter for the Cap Times, Abigail Becker. Abigail, how you doing this week? Hey, Jonah, I'm doing okay. How about yourself? You know what, Abby? I'm doing great overall, but I am a little bit bummed out today because this is, in fact, our last recording of Downtown Abbey. Uh, you have recently informed us that you are leaving your position at the Cap Times. So just off the top here, tell me what you're what you're going to do next. Yeah, sure. So, yes, it is. Um, my, I'm wrapping up my time at the Cap Times after a little over five years, and I will be moving on to a position at the University Alliance, which is a program um, housed at the Center on Wisconsin Strategy at UW-Madison. And it works to connect, you know, local government officials across the state with university researchers and faculty and students, um, you know, to solve problems going on in those communities. So I'm excited to, you know, continue my work learning about local governments, but it's certainly bittersweet knowing um, I won't you know, be a full-time you know, reporter covering Madison and Dane County. Yeah, well, I'm going to speak both personally for myself and for our larger listening audience in saying that we're going to miss your, your coverage of local government news. And uh, especially I personally am going to miss having somebody who I can ask every Wednesday about weird archival city government rules who just knows them off the top of our off their head. So we wish you all the best going forward. But hey, we've got one final episode that we've got to get into today. So let's take a dive into what's happening in local government news. Uh, First off the bat, Dane County's major jail project is getting a little bit more expensive. Supervisors will consider once more adding funds to the project. Now, how much are they considering for that? They're going to consider $23 million for this project, which is now estimated to cost about $170 million. So on Tuesday, the Public Protection and Judiciary Committee advanced on a 4-3 to vote a proposed capital budget amendment for the 2022 budget that would authorize $23 million for this jail project that has, you know, substantially become more and more expensive. Um, And most recently, those costs are due to pandemic-related increases to construction costs, you know, cost of materials and labor. So this amendment is sponsored by Supervisor Tim Rockwell, and it is now going to move on to the Personnel and Finance Committee for review. If it gains support there, the full Board of Supervisors would then discuss it as a part of the final 2022 budget deliberations in November. So, in addition to Rockwell, Supervisors Maureen McCarville, Dorothy Krause, and Jeff Wigan voted in favor. And Supervisors Rochelle Andre, Carousel Baird, and Alex Showers were opposed to it. So, like I said, this amendment will move on to one more committee, um, and then, you know, it could move on to the full board. So, we'll have to see if it gains support at personnel and finance. You know, I'm curious, you know, to see if it, if it gains more support than what it had at personnel and finance. So, we'll be, be following that. Um, you know, local elected officials have been discussing the Dane County Jail Project, which ultimately aims to bring all jail operations in the county into one downtown location for years. I mean, you know, I've been covering this for the Cap Times, I think, since I started. (laughs) Um, And, you know, discussions about it precede my time, for sure. 
Um, you know, in 2016, consultants recommended that the oldest part of the jail, which is in the city county building downtown, be shut down with they said, do haste because of the terribly outdated and dangerous conditions. So Dane County approved $76 million for the project in 2018. A year later, the county approved additional funds, which then totaled $148 million to build a tower next to the public safety building um, in a county-owned parking lot facing West Wilson Street as a part of the project instead of building on top of the public safety building. So the project shifted um, in its design, and because of that, became more expensive. Then, as we said at the top here, the pandemic pushed the cost of materials up so much that consultants um, working with the county estimated that the project would need an additional $22 million or so, putting the total project cost at $170.1 million. Right now, the project calls for closing that oldest portion of the jail, which is on the sixth and seventh floors of the city county building. Also under the plan, the Work Release Ferris Center, which is on the south side, will be vacated. And then ultimately, all the jail facilities will be consolidated downtown. The project also reduces the number of beds from 1,013 to 922 and would also have beds specifically for people who need medical and mental health treatment. You know, so right now the jail doesn't have beds for those types of things. So someone housed in the jail who needs medical and mental health treatment um, could be placed in solitary confinement. Sheriff Calvin Barrett, who was at the meeting, said that he is fully committed to the goals of the jail consolidation project and that, quote, delays and deviations threaten the health and safety of those who live and work in the jail. Um, he also said the sheriff's office may start considering other alternatives for those, um, you know, on those two floors in the city county building jail. And he said that that includes placing those who are incarcerated at facilities in other counties, which is, you know, called transferring. And that could cost the county about $15.3 million a year for um, an estimated 300 individuals. So he said that the office may have to start considering that, but this was the first that I had heard of um, that even, you know, being an option. Uh, Moving right along here, the Madison Fire Department is going to see a transition in leadership next year as Fire Chief Stephen Davis is retiring. When's his last day? Yeah, so Chief Davis is going to serve in that role until April 1st of next year, 2022. You know, he was first appointed as fire chief in 2012, um, but joined the city in 1989. You know, he has held the positions of a firefighter, a paramedic, training officer, fire lieutenant, and division fire chief of training. I talked to him on Tuesday, and, you know, he said he's the most proud of managing a team of people who supported a vision of selfless service, and he said that that was you know, really a goal that he wanted for the fire department, which was, you know, always acting in in the service of the residents that the fire department serves. Uh, most recently, uh, the chief and the fire department oversaw the launch of Madison's newest emergency response initiative called CARES, which stands for Community Alternative Response Emergency Services. And David said that expanding services around mental health and offering more specialized emergency medical services and fire response are opportunities for the department and for the next chief. You know, just also in his tenure, the city added two new fire stations and expanded service into Shorewood Hills, Blooming Grove, and the towns of Burke and Madison. Madison also achieved a superior property fire protection rating from the insurance service organization, and the fire department began using firefighting foam without a class of man-made chemicals called PFAS, you know, under Chief Davis's watch. 
Mayor Safi Rose Conway recognized what she called his level-headed leadership, um, his dedication to residents, and his common-sense approach to difficult problems, and also highlighted his commitment to equity and leadership as the city responded to COVID-19. Davis also reflected on uh, challenges of the past decade, including adjusting to new safety concerns brought on by the coronavirus pandemic. And he also remembered firefighter and paramedic Richard Garner, who unexpectedly died after a shift in 2018, and apparatus engineer Tom Mahoney, who died a year later during the Ironman triathlon. He thanked members of the fire department and highlighted their dedication and thanked the community for its continued support. So next up, the Board of Police and Fire Commissioners will be the body responsible for hiring the next fire chief of Madison. And I heard from the attorney representing the PFC that she anticipates the board will address, you know, the recruitment and hiring process at its next meeting uh, on November 8th. And then our final order of business this evening, the Madison Public Library recently launched the Native American Storyteller in Residence program in collaboration with Ho-Chunk Gaming. Now, we actually had the uh, Storyteller in Residence on the show a few days back, but for those who might have missed it, give me the background on Andy Cloud. Yeah, so Andy Cloud will be the first person to hold this position, and she said she hopes to encourage the community to embrace and engage in Ho-Chunk culture and life. So throughout the two-month residency, people can participate in art workshops, activity kits, um, you know, outdoor story walks, digital stories, and exhibits. And some events are in person while others are virtual. Libraries will also display traditional Ho-Chunk clothing and regalia, and a Ho-Chunk flag will hang on the lower level of the downtown central library. Cloud is an enrolled member of the Ho-Chunk Nation, and she grew up in Black River Falls. Uh, she earned a bachelor's degree in communication studies and political science from the University of Wisconsin La Crosse in 2006, and then later received a master's of education and professional development degree. Uh, Andy Cloud has worked in the education field and for her tribal government. She also sells her own sewing and beadwork. Uh, the residency is called Ho Chunk Through Story: The Origin, The Ways, and The Life, and. Andy has organized the residency around these three themes. So the origin is, you know, the history about the Ho-Chunk people originating from the Red Banks, which is just outside of Green Bay. And it, it will also touch on the forming of uh, the Ho-Chunk's government and talk about the constitution that they have today. So the ways, Andy said, is about the Ho-Chunk's warrior people, their veterans, and also about the harvest. And finally, the last theme, The Life, will incorporate Andy's own personal history growing up Ho-Chunk as a woman in two worlds. So this will be going on for a little bit of time, so people in Madison can definitely go check out those events. All right, and that has brought us to the end of our segment for today, for which I've been joined on the other end of the line by local government reporter for the Cap Times, Abigail Becker. Abigail, thanks so much for joining me for uh, this segment, but also all the other segments we've, we've sat through over the course of the past few years. As always, appreciate your reporting, and we wish you the best in your future endeavors. Thank you so much, Jonah, and it's been uh, my pleasure and honor to be on WRT every week. And it's time now for the most comprehensive weather report on the airwaves with WORT weather guru, Rob McClure. Well, we're at day 25 of at or above normal temperatures, and although we didn't quite break that streak last weekend when I thought we might, I think we do finally have a chance in coming days, though once again our cool-off will not be long-lived. Judging from the looks of the medium and longer range maps currently coming off the computer models at any rate, 
This is day three in a row of 72-degree high temperatures. This is at a time of year when our normal high is 58 degrees. I wasn't quite sure we'd get up to 72 today, but once the mid-level cloud cover that accompanied this morning's warm front blew north of us, we managed to get just enough hours of clearing in the warm sector at just the right time of day to do the trick. The storm around which that warm front is rotating is centered now over about southern Minnesota and presents a lovely image in the late day sun if you want to have a look at it on the visible satellite image of the upper Midwest that we have linked up on the WORT weather webpage. Its northeast-bound circulation center is beginning to arc more east and southeast now as the storm starts to occlude and will end up uh, just about over us, the storm will, by tomorrow morning before then lifting out northeastward later in the day. That will introduce modest cooling with a veering wind shift to the west during the overnight before more robust cold air advection sets in on northerly winds as the storm exits east tomorrow. The Canadian high-pressure cell that's going to be dragging south behind it is currently having its surface dew points in the low and mid-20s, but those are expected to modify a little bit to the low 30s by the time it reaches here. So overnight temperatures are fairly well positioned to be dropping to freezing should we get some uh, sufficient clearing and light winds in coming days, or at least on the coming nights. Winds should not be an issue for Thursday and Friday nights, so passing cloud cover is a little harder to predict. At this point, I'd say Friday night has the best odds for a convincing growing season-ending freeze. And from there forward, it appears we'll continue on a similar regime to the one we've seen for the past week or two now, with fairly amplified waves in the upper atmosphere passing at regular intervals and producing cycles of warming and cooling spanning roughly seven days each. So uh, although we may see a weak interim wave passing to our south on Sunday and Monday and holding us cool and damp for an extra day or two this time around, the Tuesday through Wednesday period again looks warm with a passing low pressure system wetting us up then on Wednesday and cooling us after that for the end of the week period. And we'll see how well the models hold up on those future predictions. But back to tonight, passing cloud cover may uh, get thinner break a little bit over the next few hours as slightly faster jet stream winds lift northeastward over the area. That may allow you to see the very late harvest moon on the rise. Otherwise, though, the skies will just thicken as we go through the night with temperatures gradually dropping through the 60s and then 50s as subtly winds veer more westerly at 5 to 10 miles per hour. A sprinkle or two of rain is not impossible out of those clouds, but rain chances increase a bit more as we enter the day tomorrow and see a few hours of better mid-level lift on the back side of the low-pressure center as it exits east. Temperatures will hold uh, steady around 50 much of the day tomorrow, even after the overcast starts to lift and break in the afternoon. Increasing northwesterly winds will veer northerly at 8 to 15 miles per hour in the midday hours and come down uh, in through the overnight period down to around 3 to 7 miles per hour. Temperatures will nosedive towards freezing and then as we get on towards Friday morning, but spells, uh, passing spells of mid and high clouds may hold temperatures just up in the, say, 33 to 35 degree range the way it's looking. The passing weak wave on Friday morning that's going to be bringing in those clouds will eventually clear the clouds out again as we get into the afternoon, and that may allow temperatures to reach 50 or so finally on Friday on light northwesterly winds. 
Clearer skies and light winds during the overnight look to give us a fairly good shot at a freeze, but the short-range models are still showing some passing cloud cover through the night that night. Saturday should then, uh, then be generally clear with a high temperature in the low 50s on light northerly winds. Increasing cloud cover overnight may hold us off freezing going into Sunday, a day which will otherwise see thickening cloud cover and cool, damp easterly winds by the end of the day with a high temperature back around 50 or so. At the moment, at the station on Bedford Street, we're at 65 degrees. The dew point temperature is 50. Winds are out of the south, currently at 7 miles per hour. Uh, overcast completely now over the station, with ceilings having dropped to about 4,500 feet in the past hour. The barometer is falling at 29.84 inches of mercury. It's now 6.49 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. We go now to October 18, 1967, when a protest against the Dow Chemical Company turned into an historic battle. Stu Levitan has the details on this week's episode of Madison in the 60s. Madison in the 60s, October 18, 1967, The Battle of Dow. It was the Students for a Democratic Society chapter at the University of Michigan which first targeted the Dow Chemical Company in August 1966, protesting its manufacture of the incendiary gel Napalm B for use in Vietnam. But it was at the University of Wisconsin that the anti-Dow effort became historic. In February 1967, a two-day protest against the company recruiting on the Madison campus led to the first mass arrests on campus and a tense occupation of administrative offices, with university leadership still inside. Now Dow was coming back to continue its recruiting efforts, and a broad coalition called the Ad Hoc Committee to Protest Dow Chemical has planned a two-day protest. It's part of a national anti-Dow effort leading up to that Saturday's March on the Pentagon. On Tuesday, October 17th, there is to be a rally and picket outside the Commerce Building, but no obstruction. But on Wednesday the 18th, protesters are going to break university rules and physically block other students from interviewing with the company. We must move from protest to resistance, their leaflet declares. We must stop what we oppose. They assume they'll be arrested and likely face campus discipline. But nobody expects violence. Tuesday goes according to plan. That night, 
an endorsement of the Wednesday action by the guerrilla theater group the San Francisco Mime Troupe, which by coincidence had been booked into the Union Theater by the radical poetry journal Quixote. True to form, the group leads the occupation procession up Bascom Hill the next morning with instruments and spectacle. By 11 o'clock, more than 200 active obstructors and about as many supporters observers fill the first-floor hallway in commerce. The crowd chants and sings, noise bouncing off the tile and glass, a cacophony of protest. A young woman tries to get through to get an interview. Protesters physically stop her. Others also try, all without success. Campus police try to arrest three protesters, but when the crowd intervenes and blocks their effort, UW Police Chief Ralph Hansen has his men stand down and step away. Out on the plaza, pickets and speeches attract a crowd of more than a thousand. Veteran civil rights and peace activist Vicky Gabriner snakes through the crowd in white face and leggings. In sarcastic tribute to the Regent's idealistic statement of academic freedom from 1894, she bears a sign proclaiming herself Miss Sifting and Winnowing. Campus top cop Hansen fails in several attempts to clear the building. Finally, he asks Chancellor William Sewell for permission to call for city police. Only two months in office, Sewell is the day's tragic figure. A noted sociologist, he was personally against the war, and as a faculty member earlier that year, had voted against allowing Dow onto campus. But in his new post, he feels obliged to enforce the rule against obstruction, which the faculty had just reaffirmed. He tells Hansen to make the call. About 25 policemen with protective helmets and riot sticks respond. Most are Madison natives from the east side, and many simmer with class and political resentment against the college students they see as privileged, pampered, and unpatriotic. Then everything goes wrong. The riot squad is restless, untrained, with a confused mission and a command structure that breaks down almost immediately. Their initial foray into the foyer at about 1.30 p.m. is repulsed. It's unclear whether the crowd surge that pushes the police out is intentional or an involuntary reflux. The city police regroup and charge back in. But Hansen, who is supposed to be in charge, has been pushed out of the building and is no longer there to restrain them. Outnumbered by about ten to one, police flail away with their two-foot wooden nightsticks, which rise and fall with frightening frequency. The thwack of wood on skulls sounds like a bouncing basketball or a baseball bat bashing a watermelon. Some students fight back, kicking and spitting. Fear and panic and pain turn to hysteria as chaos engulfs the corridor. They're not arresting students. They're beating them bloody and throwing them out into the commerce courtyard. Among those sent to the emergency room, history grad student Paul Soglin. Police clear the building in 13 minutes, but haven't yet won the day. On the plaza and hill, students are surging, scuffling, crying, Sieg Heil! The growing crowd grows more and more combative. Bricks and bottles fly, and several hit their mark. Into the maelstrom, the 115 class gets out, packing the hill with another mass of students not initially involved, but about to become so, as Madison Police Chief Wilbur Emery calls for the tear gas, the country's first use of tear gas to quell an on-campus anti-war protest. It's a bad call.
The wind whips the gas every which way, striking and radicalizing many unintended targets. Sewell watches it all from his Bascom Hall office, aghast, traumatized. He knows what the debacle is doing to his reputation and the university's. Reinforcements arrive, and police finally take control. By 4.30, it's all over. 48 students and six non-students are treated at the emergency room, mainly for scalp lacerations. 18 policemen suffer injuries ranging from black eyes and broken bones to serious facial fractures and a permanently damaged larynx. Police are embarrassed at the beating they've taken, and Chief Emery resolves to respond more forcefully next time. Still, officers take pride in what they've been through. They call the cops who stormed commerce the Dirty Thirty, and some even wear uniform patches with that moniker. The university suspends 13 pending further proceedings. Ten are charged with disorderly conduct. After an agonizing four-hour debate, the faculty defeat a motion to condemn police brutality and instead adopt a motion endorsing Sewell's actions. Students are outraged, feeling betrayed. 3,000 meet on Library Mall that night and form the Committee on Student Rights, which Soglin chairs. They hold a short student strike on Friday and a mournful march to the Capitol on Saturday, where a special state Senate committee would soon start an investigation. Everyone takes their own lesson from Dow. Radicalized students now see the university as protecting the military. Protest leaders Bob Cohn and Evan Stark see their campus careers end. University administrators see a need for a new, harder line. The state's most powerful politicians, and many of its people, see the university as out of control. The police and the students see each other as threats. The summer of love is over. And that's this week's Madison in the 60s. For your award-winning, vaccine-taking, mask-wearing WRT News Team, I'm Stu Levitan. And this show is over. Thanks for listening to WORT's Live Local News at 6. This is mostly a volunteer-produced newscast, so I will send out the call one more time for reporters. If you'd like to train to become a reporter, we can provide the training. Give us a call at 256-2001. We'd love to have you down here working on the show, and it's an awful lot of fun. Special thanks to feature contributors Abby Becker and Stu Levitan this evening. Jonah Chester produced the newscast. Ken Brady was our on-air engineer. And Charlie Pittman is the news director at WORT. I'm your host, Robert McClure. And I'm your host, Vicki Iden. Stay up to date with the WORT local news podcast. Subscribe on iTunes Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcasts. Up next is Query, followed by This Way Out. Have a good night.